Hello, and welcome to the EPC podcast. I'm Garvin Walsh, head of communications at the EPC. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022, marked a watershed for our continent. But is it rising to the challenge? Here at the EPC, we develop and debate the ideas that will shape Europe's future. Welcome, everyone. Joining me today are Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Public Diplomacy at NATO, Senior EPC Policy Analyst Amanda Paul, and EPC Policy Analyst Mihai Chiaia. As world leaders leave Vilnius this morning, we ask, no timeline for Ukraine, no long-range attackums. Has the West missed its opportunity to show its resolve against Russian aggression? Defense spending at 2%. It's mentioned in the communique, but what concrete steps are planned to actually meet this target? And there have been two decisive steps from Turkish President Erdogan, both with the defenders of the Azovstal plant and also on Swedish NATO accession. Finally, two other things. The Black Sea, it's still a major theater of military operations. And of course, Asia. NATO says there's a 360-degree approach. There were four Asian powers visiting Vilnius. So to talk about all these things, we welcome our excellent panel of guests. So I just wanted to start with you, Jamie. There's been a lot of negative coverage in the press about whether Ukraine's actually got enough from this NATO summit. Do you think that's fair? Or do you think what we've got is, you know, as realistic as we could have expected in the circumstances? Uh, well, Gavin, many thanks to you and the EPC for inviting me on today. I must say I'm in the second camp. I think to use a phrase from Jack Nicholson, it's as good as it gets. NATO membership immediately for Ukraine was never on the cards. And to some degree, by sort of raising that as an expectation, inevitably, President Zelensky would have set himself up for failure. But what he got instead was, I think, a very good package. And what Zelensky is saying today, now that he's back in Kiev, which it's a solid foundation for Ukraine's defence and the best security assurances that Ukraine has ever had, suggests to me at least that uh, he is constructively seeing the glass as half full now rather than half empty. I mean, I don't blame Zelensky. Nobody would for raising the stakes before the summit. That was his interest. Uh, Ukraine's at war. It's in a beleaguered situation. Obviously, he had to push for as much as he could possibly get. But I think the package is a good and balanced one, which is to say the G7 countries will negotiate now bilaterally a package of security assurances for Ukraine, providing a long-term financial and military commitment to Ukraine security. NATO has said to you that Ukraine doesn't have to go through the membership action plan. So in other words, it will be fast tracked to uh, membership once the conflict is over. There was this uh, upgraded consultation forum, the NATO-Ukraine Council, which suggests that the NATO and Ukraine will be able to sort of align and consult more regularly. And finally, NATO came up with a package called a comprehensive assistance package to the tune of 500 million euros, whereby Ukraine and NATO could continue to work on standards and interoperability. But I think also, you know, Zelensky would have been heartened that the most important aspect of all, which is that he continues to get military support now to pursue the spring offensive, because let's face it, if Ukraine doesn't win this war, all bets on NATO or EU enlargement uh, are off the table. And there were lots and lots of allies who came forward with quite significant commitment. So, you know, all in all, did Zelensky go back to Kiev empty-handed? Absolutely not. Immediate membership was not on the cards. But one thing I will say, finally, is that, you know, to my mind, this summit sort of moved the cursor, because in the last couple of years, there's a debate to what the Agree. NATO was really serious about engaging uh, Ukraine, notwithstanding the promises made back in Bucharest in 2008. But I think after this summit, everybody knows that Ukraine's membership of NATO is now inevitable, if not automatic. It's just a question of finding the right time and the right circumstances. Amanda, are you also a glass half full person? Do you think the cursor has been moved by the summit? 
or wasn't moved by the war itself. I agree with Jamie to a certain extent, but I do believe that Ukrainians today will still be feeling rather disappointed and frustrated, despite the fact that they got this good package on paper from the G7 members, because of course this needs to be translated from words into actions, and it needs to be sustained. And we need to remember as well that Ukraine wasn't expecting NATO to say welcome in Vilnius. They knew that. They knew they weren't going to get a message saying welcome to the club or giving a specific date. But what they did expect was a stronger commitment, I believe, to the actual time frame. Because for many people, it seems to be to a certain extent a sort of Bucharest 2.0, where we're left with a sort of ambiguous situation, which can be used, of course, by the Russians to their own advantage, because you said that NATO membership is inevitable. I hope that it is, but I mean, it's only inevitable when they're actually in the club. Could this happen in the next one year? I don't know. By the Washington summit? I don't know. So these are still very big questions. So will Ukraine ever get into NATO? I think is a question that still needs to be answered. I believe that they will as well. But I think there's still a lot of differences between NATO member states, which was also exposed in this summit which will please the Kremlin. So at the end of the day, the arms commitments that have been made are important, but they also need, at least in my opinion, to be a greater sense of urgency. There's a lot of talk about where we're with Ukraine till the end, no matter how long it takes. It should be in the shortest time frame possible. And this means delivering what's been promised much quicker. I mean, there was an agreement at NATO as well for this coalition to train F-16 pilots starting in September. This could have started more than a year ago. How long will that training take? I don't know. You mentioned the spring offensive. Ukraine's spring offensive didn't really start in the spring now, did it? It started more in the beginning of the summer. And as well as it's going and liberating some territory, it would have been going a hell of a lot better if the commitments to deliver arms been done much quicker but arrived in Ukraine. Amanda, if there were two things that you think Ukraine could have realistically got from this summit but didn't, what do you think they would be? I mean, I would have liked to see a strong commitment from all NATO member states, uh, not on Ukraine entering NATO now, but on a more precise timeline, what they expect at the next summit. I mean, in Washington, for example, because it's still not very clear. There should be more clarity. And I would have liked to see a much bigger commitment on actual timelines for the delivery of such things as F-16s, more air defence systems, the long-range missile systems, for example, because there's a lot of commitments to deliver these things, but actually when they're going to arrive in Ukraine is not very clear. So there needs to be a bigger sense of urgency. And I didn't see that from NATO. There's a lot of, you know, self-congratulation. And of course, I think that Secretary General Stoltenberg has done an amazing job trying to get everybody on the same page, but it's clear that not everybody is on the same page in terms of how far they want to go. Coming briefly, of course, uh, before we go to Mihai, you know, Amanda makes, as always, uh, some very valid points that these meetings tend to sort of solve certain issues only at the price of opening others. And I think there are two big issues that NATO now has to address. Number one is what does it mean by conditions? Because there's a little bit of a contradiction saying to Ukraine on the one side, you guys have made so much progress in meeting NATO standards that you don't need to go through the membership action plan as Sweden and Finland have not had to go through that membership action plan because they were fully NATO compatible. So in other words, the conditions are met. But on the other hand, NATO has said, 
when you meet the conditions. So what are the remaining conditions which were not in the membership action? I think NATO has to be clear, first of all, among its own members, but what exactly it's looking for Ukraine to do here. The Americans put emphasis on the political side of the spectrum, things like anti-corruption, economic reform, institutions, freedom of the media, those kind of things. Whereas before the conflict, NATO seemed to be talking more about military conditions in terms of interoperability. I think we've got to have a little bit of clarity on that, and the Ukrainians have to know what those conditions are because if you don't know the conditions, how can you possibly uh, fulfill them? I think the second thing is even more important, which is that uh, we all know that if you say uh, Ukraine can be fast tracked into NATO once the war is over, what is once the war is over? There's been a debate about putting that decision in the hands of President Putin, which is not what NATO nor Ukraine have an interest in doing. Because if Putin continues the war, the war is not over, Ukraine's membership can't go ahead. And it means that Putin only has to sort of launch a couple of artillery shells over over the border, even after a peace agreement at any moment, for NATO perhaps to say, ah, there isn't a perfect peace, we can't move. So NATO may have to integrate Ukraine in circumstances which are somewhat in a grey zone between what we see at the moment, which is a full-scale war, but on the other side, uh, the unlikely situation where there's going to be some kind of a perfect peace without some kind of low tension activity. I think we're talking a little bit about West Berlin, Garvin, during the Cold War, where you integrate a territory into NATO, which is in a state of uh, high tension. This is not easy, but I think NATO has to start thinking about it. I take Amanda's point also about speeding up the delivery of weapons. Uh, I did note, however, usefully that the incoming chairman, George, General George of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when he had his uh, hearings in Congress yesterday, for his appointment did push very, very hard on the attackums. So let's hope that a US decision on that will come through very quickly. Mikhail, if we look at this question of integrating Ukraine in a situation of tension, is this something that you think they're able to handle? I think it's normal that there are differences of opinions between allies. I think they spent the last couple of days before the summit agreeing on the on the final communique text. But this is something normal that always happens. It's natural that each ally has their own interests as well, besides the, the common uh, NATO interest. But I think certainly there has been uh, progress with the, with this summit. I would also connect it with the summit uh, last year, like a path going forward that will probably, uh, for sure, will continue in Washington next year, where, where again, we'll have a summit assessing what has been uh, achieved. I mean, there are many open questions uh, left, of course, regarding Ukraine, regarding uh, defense spending, what what happens next, uh, also regarding defense and deterrence, also regarding the the, the eastern flank. Of course, if we speak about um, different opinions of allies, we we see again, of course, countries from the eastern flank pushing for more reinforcements, more permanent troops on the the eastern uh, flank. Up to now, there have been reinforcements since uh, since Madrid. I would say that uh, we're not yet there at the objective objectives uh, set, but it's it's ongoing uh, work. And of course, regarding Ukraine, there are many uh, questions that are still unanswered regarding uh, what are the conditions, like Jamie uh, said, or, or how could the end of the war look like? I mean, Mihai, are we even in a situation where, in fact, it was Madrid summit that will have been the decisive shift, and Vilnius is more sort of tying loose ends together and reinforcing commitments already made? 
Yeah, of course, at the Madrid uh, summit, there have been some substantial uh, measures for, for instance, for reinforcing the eastern flank from uh, building up from the eight uh, multinational battle groups to pre-assigned uh, brigades to a new NATO response force to that pre-positioned equipment. Of course, there is a certain of uh, unprecedented measures. And now at Vilnius, it was sort of a moment to reassess on one side to see what progress has been achieved, what's needed, but also to propose uh, new measures such as, for instance, the regional defense plans, which I think play an important role in, in deterring Russia on, on long term. I think this also leads us nicely into the question of defense expenditure, the scale of military budgets. And there was, of course, the commitment for keeping defense investment in major procurement at 20% of total defense budgets. But there wasn't a commitment on longer term R&D. Have we been unable to get agreement on investing in the long-term sustainability of our defence infrastructure? Certainly, I think, as BI said, the regional defence plans are a big step forward in sort of providing clarity about the NATO command structure, now split into three regions, North, Centre, and then Black Sea South, covering Turkey, of course, as well. Also, I think that these regional defence plans usefully give each individual ally a specific task, uh, which can be measured. So one ally can't sort of behind hide behind another. Everybody now is exposed in terms of the commitment they've taken on to be somewhere after so many days with so many tanks and so much artillery and so on. Then the idea is that all of the NATO exercises will be geared to rehearsing those regional plans to make sure that they can actually be implemented. And then coming to your point, Garvin, the idea then is that NATO's uh, member states, in terms of their R&D, in terms of their procurement policies, look to how they are going to come up with the capabilities uh, to be able to achieve those plans. And and, uh, not only do they have individual commitments, but uh, the Supreme Allied Commander, General Cavoli, has set down also certain sort of generic commitments, which are unsurprisingly, you know, armoured divisions, or at least armoured brigades in the short run, fully mobile. Secondly, air and missile defence, data links between the battlefield and headquarters and and, and back again, mobility, of course, uh, a big issue because NATO is still dependent on a a reinforcement enforcement uh, strategy. And and so uh, the thing here is a lot of this is rather conventional, rather than highfalutin sort of, you know, intergalactic uh, wars based on, you know, all of the new technologies. It's rather sort of going back to reviving sort of the type of things that NATO was doing during the Cold War uh, in in the 1970s and ramping up defence production. NATO, of course, also wants to increase its reserves of conventional things like 155 millimetre ammunition and artillery shells and repair facilities for tanks. So, to some degree, you know, I think the challenge is going to be to find a balance and clear guidance for allies between how much of the old sort of capability needs to be resurrected versus how much investment in some of the newer things as well. Just before, of course, the summit began, for NATO did sort of uh, unveil uh, a new innovation fund, but only one billion based up in The Hague in the Netherlands. And, and of course, this is small when you think of the 8.8 billion that the EU is spending on um, its its own, the European Development Fund. You think of the EU investment, of course, in the PESCO projects and so on. You think of everything that Commissioner Breton, his team, is doing to ramp up a defence industry. And, and I think one of the missing links of this summit, even though Ursula von der Leyen was there, was how NATO and the EU are going to work together on this innovation piece. You know, For example, how much of the procurement is going to be carried out by the European Defence Agency vis-a-vis NATO's uh, supply and procurement agency in 
Luxembourg. You know, how is this Project Diana, as NATO calls it, its uh, Defence Innovation Accelerator, how is that going to play out with some of the programmes that are going to be funded by the EU under Horizon or under the European uh, Defence Fund? How are we going to really you know, get proper synergy? It communicate, disappointingly to my view, had very little to say on that. I would like to add a couple of things about some aspects. Uh, one is maybe more complimenting Jamie on the on the regional defense plans, which I think are, are very relevant as we move forward. And another point was on the 2% uh, defense spending. On the regional plans, as, as Jamie has uh, highlighted, these will provide guidance to, to for forces where to go and where to position themselves in, in case of an attack. Uh, of course, uh, having this guidance uh, doesn't mean automatically that this uh, this this can be done so this it also doesn't mean automatically that we have the necessary force generation to to do this so that's why uh, exercises are very important here uh, nato has done quite a few exercises lately including the, the air defender which i think was the biggest air exercise and and the, there is the plan to to continue to stress test these uh, these plans to, to, to see where are the bottlenecks and and what could be done to, to, to reinforce them and make sure that they work actually in, uh, in, in practice. Now, secondly, on the 2%, of course, uh, as it was expected at the, at, the, at the NATO summit, allies agreed to make 2% a floor rather than a, than a ceiling. And of course, when we look at the allies now, I think there are three categories. One is, of course, allies who are above 2%. Then there are allies who uh, will reach two percent in the in the near uh, in the near future, and then there are the allies which are nowhere closer to to two percent. Uh, but as we move forward to the Washington summit, which will also mark ten years from the the, the Wells two percent pledge, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, we need. Um, a sustained effort of this two percent. So it's not just reaching two percent and then we just we that's it. We go back to what was before. It's just maintaining this two percent and over two percent as as we move forward. Are we trying too hard to move at the le- slowest member of the alliance? Is is it valuable to keep everybody together, or should certain people be allowed to form a sort of advance guard moving? further in their support for Ukraine and to keep up with the pace of military developments on the ground? Well, certainly I think we're seeing a lot of spontaneous stuff going on, and I think that's good. Some of it seems to be moving forward and some of it not. I mean, two examples, you've got uh, Joe Biden up in Finland today meeting with the Nordic countries, and those Nordic countries, facilitated, of course, by Sweden and Finland's membership of NATO, recently announced that they're going to pull their air defence radars, coordinate their uh, air defence aircraft, and have a sort of a common sort of sky shield if you like, over the uh, uh, the Nordic area. Uh, Nordic cooperation is very highly advanced. So that's great. You know, that makes sense. They've got a history of working together. They're largely compatible. Uh, they have different aircraft, of course. But, you know, if they're willing to integrate regionally, that helps uh, everybody. Um, similarly, you've got the UK. Uh, easy for me always being in London to talk about. But the UK, you know, notwithstanding Brexit, is also very interested in working with the Nordic countries on the joint expeditionary force in the Nordic group and, and 
and the like. You've now got this new consortium of 11 countries that will be soon commencing both in Denmark and Romania, the training of the F-16 pilots. So uh, you've got uh, Germany proposing a European sky shield in terms of anti-ballistic defence, a key requirement when you look at all of the missiles that Russia has been using. But here's the rub. France has had a, a sort of a rival meeting recently in Paris with a French view of the European sky shield because Germany says, oh, look, you know, we need this quickly. So let's go on the open market and buy American systems, American patriots, other kinds of, you know, American or other air defense systems because we, you know, we can get these quickly. France says, no, if we're going to be spending a lot of European money and strategic autonomy was mentioned a moment ago by Mihai, uh, then let's spend it on the European defense industry. Uh, let's get the benefit at home in terms of developing the European defense technology and the industrial base, even if it takes a bit longer. So unfortunately, um, Amanda pointed to this, you come up against competing visions very quickly. Yesterday, we had a major disappointment where uh, Germany and Poland have been working together for some time to to co-fund and establish in Poland a repair facility for Leopard tanks damaged in the war in Ukraine, but which can be repaired and sent back to the battlefield. That's cheaper than always having to buy new ones, Gavin. But uh, unfortunately, the uh, defense, the, the two industries could not agree on pricing. So the Germans have now withdrawn from that and are going to try to do something in Lithuania. The problem there was not that the governments weren't aligned, but they couldn't get their defense industries to agree to work together. So there's a lot of interesting initiatives. There are false starts. But I think the big question finally is when the war comes to an end, how is the EU going to take all of these you know, little bilateral, regional, ad hoc arrangements on repairs, on, on co-production, on, on integration, all in the name of multinational defence and put it into some kind of coherent EU framework so that it can be uh, so, you know, not folded as soon as the Ukraine war is all over, but sustained in the long term. Both, uh, of course, all of this uh, long-term military assistance that the G7 has now pledged to give to Ukraine in Vilnius, but also, of course, to develop the EU's own defence capability and then made compatible with NATO. So in other words, how do we put all of these little parts of the jigsaw puzzle into a coherent single EU defence picture? A coherent single EU defence picture. But of course, there are non-EU NATO allies. I mean, obviously, the United States, obviously, the United Kingdom. But of course, another very important ally in NATO in this situation because of its geography, because of the strength of its armed forces is Turkey. We've seen two decisive steps from President Erdogan this this week. First of all, the release of the defenders of the Azov-style plant from Mariupol. He was supposed to be keeping these until the end of the war under a deal he had with Putin. Now he's had them freed and they're back in Ukraine. Some of them even said they're going to go back and hit the front to keep fighting the Russians. The second issue is Sweden's NATO membership, which Erdogan had been putting on hold for, for some time, has now been forwarded to the Turkish parliament. Now, a deal's not done until the deal's not actually done, but this looks like a positive step as well. What is behind this sudden shift in Erdogan's diplomacy? Does it have anything to do with his economy? Does it have anything to do with F-16s? Or is it because the election's over and he's more secure? I mean, honestly, I wouldn't consider it to be a sudden shift, to be honest. I mean, Turkey was always going to give the green light for Sweden's accession. I mean, it's a pity it took so long, but Turkey has a very long history of supporting NATO enlargement and will continue to do so. But yes, Erdogan kept everybody on the edge of the seat. There has been lots of twists and turns, but Sweden made it in the end. Of course, Turkey also believes that they have achieved, or Erdogan 
projects that he has achieved also something tangible or several different things tangible from this outcome, which is good news for his domestic audience. I mean, everything is important for domestic audience, of course, but also how Erdogan is viewed in the world. I mean, he wants to be viewed as a powerful actor, not just in Turkey, but in the region and globally. So all of these things combined together, I think, produced a, re- a positive result of his image in, in Vilnius. I mean, on the second issue related to the Azov fighters and the other decisions that were made. I mean, I get, I think, again, this is Erdogan showing he can do whatever he wants to do, and he doesn't care what the Russians think. I mean, there seems to be this perception that Turkey is, or Erdogan is, you know, cautious of Russia, scared of Russia, whatever you want to put it. But I think in in Turkey, there's an understanding now that, you know, Russia has been weakened, Putin has been weakened, he has very few friends, now in the world, or cronies, whatever you want to call them. So there's a lot more space to take de- decisive actions. And we also need to take into consideration that Turkey has been supporting Ukraine for years. I mean, long before the second phase of this war began, Turkey was a strong supporter of Ukraine's territorial integrity. Turkey was very vocal following the annexation and occupation of Crimea back in 2014, that more should have been done to push back against Russia. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. They have had strong defence and security cooperation with Ukraine, both politically and economically. So, in fact, it didn't surprise me that much that President Erdogan took the step of ignoring the agreement that he made with the Russians and sent the Azov fighters back to Ukraine. Because, I mean, this was an amazing thing to do. I mean, these guys are superheroes in Ukraine. So, obviously, it's projected an image of Erdogan as this amazing guy who's ready to stand up against the Russians. And that isn't, you know, the only thing that Turkey was doing. I mean, now it's become common knowledge that Turkey was also sending cluster um, munition to Ukraine. They have long been sending the drones, the Bayraktar drones, and they're now going to be cooperating on producing again drones. This was also in the news. So there was a number of positive steps that were taken over the last few days that put Turkey in the spotlight and put President Erdogan in the spotlight, which will be beneficial to him at home for sure. Of course, what you mentioned about the Turkish economy is also an aspect. It's still in a critical situation. It remains to be seen whether the new Minister of Finance, Mehmet Şimşek, will be able to turn the situation around, whether President Erdogan will fully listen to what the minister has to say. But it's obvious now that there needs to be a stronger link between foreign policy and economic policy. Because at the end of the day, the West, particularly the EU, is Turkey's main trade and economic partner. So there needs to be a sort of way of improving relations with the EU. And these sorts of steps that have been taken by Turkey in the last few days have definitely contributed to this. I mean, part of the agreement that was made with the Swedes, I mean, if you can call it an agreement, uh, was that Sweden would, you know, back Turkey's accession to the EU. I mean, Sweden already backed Turkey's accession to the EU for many years and that there would be another attempt to revitalize, you know, the EU accession process with Turkey. I mean, obviously, this isn't going to happen because Turkey doesn't meet the Copenhagen political criteria. But what we could see would be a sort of effort to upgrade the the EU-Turkey Customs Union, perhaps a bigger effort towards revitalizing the the visa liberalization process 
dependent, of course, on Turkey meeting the two remaining criteria. Isn't Putin going to visit Ankara pretty soon? Are we going to see anything on the other side? Is Erdogan going to try and balance that a bit? Or do you think he's going to project a significant air of superiority over Putin, presenting Putin as more of a kind of supplicant? I mean, I don't think um, that would be the approach of, of President Erdogan. I mean, I've, I mean, I've been reading the uh, the news space, if you can say that, disinformation space, we should call it. I mean, it's obvious that the Russians were furious that Erdogan took this step. There's a lot of, you know, negative things in there. But I mean, to be honest, I believe that if the, the visit goes ahead, probably we'll see the two of them acting like they're good friends. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, Turkey is important for Russia because Putin has nearly no friends left in the world. So I don't think we're going to see an, you know, animosity between the two. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, if President Erdogan is very friendly and says, you know, welcome, Vladimir, it's good to see you, my very good friend. You know, what can we do more together? They actually agree in some areas to strengthen, you know, economic cooperation or something along these lines. Because at the end of the day, Putin's not really in a position to take any negative action against Turkey. I mean, it's the opposite. He needs Turkey. He needs a cooperation with, with Erdogan. Um, so I expect the, there is, the visit could be actually quite positive. Turkey and, and, and Ukraine, of course, are both Black Sea states. Is this you know, a shift that the, the, the war has caused in attention towards the Black Sea, an increase in environment of insecurity there? Is this starting to feature in the thinking? I mean, the Black Sea did make a paragraph or two in this um, very long communique of about um, 96 paragraphs, if I'm not mistaken. Is this something that NATO is paying enough attention to? And Mihai, do you think they should be devoting more attention to this contested region? Or is, are there ways that NATO can improve the security of Black Sea states like um, Romania and Bulgaria, um, as well as tilt the balance a little bit away from Russia? Well, I would say that instability in the Black Sea has been there for, for many years, especially after the, the Russian annexation of Crimea. Of course, if we look backwards, uh, at that point, there were many calls from the countries in the region for NATO to, to do more, to highlight particularly, of course, uh, Romania's uh, lobby and initiatives for NATO to, to pay more attention to, to the Black Sea. Uh, then Black Sea featured, of course, in the um, communiques of the previous summits, including uh, uh, Madrid and now uh, in, uh, in in Vilnius, but the the language is I find it quite general. They acknowledge that Black Sea has strategic importance, and uh, they will work to get more awareness of the threats in the in the Black Sea, which which is not much in in practice. Now, if we go back in time, of course, there have been many sort of initiatives put put forward. Um, and one of them is, of course, uh, for NATO to develop a Black Sea strategy, which, of course, discussions have happened, but the strategy itself, we're not closer to it than we were a couple of years back. On top of this, of course, there have been calls for uh, for NATO to do more in the Black Sea, more, uh, more maritime presence, of course, rotational presence. But uh, this uh, hasn't, uh, it has happened to, to a limited, to a limited extent. Uh, now, of course, if we look forward in, in, in the future, the situation is uh, looks uh, way more uncertain and uh, way worse than, than it previously was. 
So there is a big question mark of what NATO can can do in the Black Sea. There are many, many Russian military assets there. And I, I think the, the military leadership of the alliance have highlighted a few days back that we shouldn't underestimate uh, Russian capabilities. They still have uh, they still have ships, uh, submarines in the Black Sea and not only. And we should take this uh, this threat uh, seriously. As, as for what uh, NATO could do, I, I still think it would be valuable to develop uh, a Black Sea strategy, but also to develop uh, concrete ways to, to support uh, the navies of, of the riparian countries. Also, at the same time, it's important to look at how the Ukrainian Navy could look like in, uh, in, in the future and what would be its purpose and how NATO can support its, uh, its development. Jamie, I mean, it seems from this that in a sense, NATO may have taken its eye off the ball of the Black Sea a bit. Do you agree with that? Or do you just think that it's been a very busy world? It wasn't a priority. Um, events have changed. And so they now have to pay a bit more attention to it. No, I mean, uh, uh, to be fair to NATO, and I say this, uh, Garvin, not simply because I'm a former NATO official. I, I'm now an analyst, so I try to be as objective as possible, even where my uh, old institution is concerned. No, I, I think NATO has been focusing on the Black Sea. I, there was this decision to create these additional four battalions, uh, multinational battalions in the Black Sea area. France uh, has taken the lead in Romania, Italy and Bulgaria. France has moved quite a lot of, of military equipment there. Uh, the Belgian uh, also last week uh, deployed uh, forces, the, the French uh, multinational battalion. So uh, on land, at least, uh, there certainly has been a consolidation of NATO's uh, uh, presence, which is ongoing. From a maritime perspective, NATO left the Black Sea at the beginning of uh, the uh, war between Russia and Ukraine, or at least Putin's invasion of Ukraine. NATO is going to have to sort of determine when, and again, under which conditions it will re-enter the uh, Black Sea. There's also uh, the need to have access to the Black Sea for any future security guarantees that will be given to Ukraine. If you can only do that by land and you don't have the ability to uh, supply those security guarantees through operations in the Black Sea, it's going to be more difficult. But as Mihai says, it depends a bit on where Ukraine is at the end of this conflict. Will it regain control of the Crimea? That changes the dynamics of Black Sea security in a fundamental way. Will Ukraine hopefully regain control of its ports as, as well? How much of the Black Sea lift will remain in Ukrainian hands. Uh, of course, Georgia is important too. A lot of NATO uh, NATO's help to Georgia has been in the form of uh, ship visits to Batumi, to Poti, exercises in the Black Sea with Ukraine, a common maritime air defence picture in the region. So there, a lot was happening. And, and so, yes, the question is, under what circumstances can it be uh, uh, resumed? That all said, I mean, obviously, the most important thing for the moment is not particularly a NATO issue. It's how to keep the Black Sea grain deal going. Uh, it's been so important, obviously, in terms of uh, allowing Ukraine to, and Russia, to put their grain on international markets and relieve hunger and all of that. So uh, Turkey has played a critical role with the UN in brokering that Black Sea uh, grain deal. The coordination centre, of course, is in Turkey uh, for all of that. Uh, and so I think it's really going to be uh, Turkish pressure, international pressure on Russia uh, to at least allow that deal to carry on, even if the Russians are playing hardball by saying that they will only extend it for one month or two months and not the six months to a year uh, that the UN uh, would like to see. Amanda, is this something where you see Erdogan playing a new role, especially in his new constructive mode? 
I mean, I think Turkey's always been quite constructive. Well, it has been very constructive when it comes to the Black the Black Sea Grain Agreement. And as we know, President Erdogan has also signalled that Turkey could potentially actually use its naval vessels to help Ukrainian vessels carry on exporting grain in the event that the Russians actually decide not to continue with the grain deal. I mean, that's quite a high risk strategy, if I could put it that way. But there is nothing to prevent the deal, the sort of export of of Ukrainian grain from the Black Sea if Russia decides to pull out. I mean, it's a risk because, of course, Russia could attack Ukrainian vessels. That's the risk. Whether they would attack the the, the Turkish um, naval vessels if they would decide to guard the Ukrainian vessels when they were leaving the Black Sea, this is a this is a question. I don't know. Yeah, if I may add two other issues that I think are very relevant when we speak about the Black Sea. One is the the, the protection of uh, critical subsea infrastructure. And then on the other hand, uh, when we look forward, I think it's important also to look at the, the lessons learned from the naval warfare in, in the Black Sea, because there are some first instances of naval warfare in 20, 30 years, and there is a lot to be to be learned here. Thank you, Mihai. And we're running towards the end of our time here, but I think we have enough time for a quick fire round on Asia. Significantly, there were four Asian powers invited to Vilnius. What is NATO's role in Asia? Is this significant? Well, in terms of press coverage, Garvin, this uh, meeting with the four Asian Pacific leaders was uh, rather disappointing. Uh, the press were, of course, were of course chasing the Ukraine story uh, first and foremost. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, there were some significant things going on. Uh, Australia, for instance, uh, which has been uh, very supportive of uh, uh, Ukraine, announced that it was giving uh, thirty extra so-called Bushmaster uh, vehicles to Ukraine. Uh, the Australians even announced they would going to place a surveillance plane in in Germany, uh, not to go over into Ukraine, but to patrol, if you like, the supply chain routes uh, between Europe uh, and Ukraine. Um, and of course, NATO has very much welcomed the, the support of these Asia-Pacific countries, both Japan and South Korea at the summit hinted that they were revising their arms export policies. You know, the idea is that South Korea will sell a lot of 155 millimeter ammunition to the United States, which then the United States will give to uh, Ukraine. NATO signed uh, so-called individually tailored partnership programs. Suggest that yes, on an individual basis, where we uh, recognise NATO recognises sort of common challenges. You know, you've got problems with North Korean missiles. We've got problems with Russian missiles. Let's talk about your experience with ballistic missile defence, and we'll share uh, information with you. Yeah, cyber defence. You know, you give us uh, information about the attacks you've suffered, and we'll compare notes. You know, all of this makes good sense because even if the challenges have different names china north korea uh, russia iran the the nature of the challenges cybersecurity disinformation missile defense critical infrastructure protection are are identical and so that exchange of notes is all to the very well but there are two big unanswered questions uh, behind all of this number one uh, 
does this mean that NATO is now beyond the sort of individual partnership agreements going to take on some greater strategic role in the Indo-Pacific? And the answer to that seems to be no. For example, the French held up one of the measures that NATO was very much hoping to adopt in Vilnius, which was the opening of a a liaison office in Tokyo uh, in Japan. Secondly, and very briefly, uh, NATO didn't really say much more in Vilnius than it said in Madrid last year about what its role vis-a-vis China is going to be. Uh, It said China had stated ambitions, I quote, and coercive policies, pretty much what it's been saying in the past. It kept the same vague offer to open some kind of dialogue with China. But I got the impression that, you know, NATO hasn't really got much further down the field in, in terms of what its role strategically in the region, if any should be, and how it specifically wants to be or to provide added value to the EU and other Western efforts, the G7 efforts, to to deal with the rising challenge of China. On Asia or indeed on anything else, Amanda, just to close off uh, briefly. I have a final word on Asia, um, which is, I believe if NATO wants to open an information office anywhere, they should open it in Beijing. I think this could be actually far more helpful to give a better understanding to what they're actually doing in the region, because opening in Tokyo or elsewhere, I think it gives a different sort of message. Um, But my very last word is actually going to be on Georgia. Georgia didn't get anything out of this summit, but I think we, we still need to recall and remember that a few years back, Georgia was in a position where it could have actually entered NATO. It was more progressed than some of the countries that joined at that time, and I'm talking about Montenegro. We all know the situation in Georgia these days. Hopefully, this 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 sort of difficult period that Tbilisi is going through um, sort of self-sabotage to a certain degree. They'll come to their senses and won't lose any more time. Because I do think that the, the sort of, I do have the impression that Georgia has become, you know, less important or it's not viewed in any sort of strategic way um, by the NATO alliance or perhaps even by the EU these days. And I think this is a mistake. I mean, Georgia sits in the South Caucasus, the other side of the Black Sea, an incredibly important strategic region. It's really important that this continues to be strong engagement with the country, with a population that is fully pro Uh, Euro-Atlantic integration, and we don't make the mistake of being short-sighted to really push Georgia out of our space. The the NATO needs to continue to engage with Georgia as an important partner, and we mustn't forget the important geostrategic location of the country and the commitment, actually, of the population to this. It's important. Thank you for listening. For more analysis from Vilnius, go to our website, epc.eu, and follow us on Twitter at epc underscore eu and on LinkedIn. Until next time.